Hallie and I love being part of Journey Church, and uh, you know we're so glad to be here week after week. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were not here. Uh, we were gone. We were in Pennsylvania, but we thought of you as we were as we were here. And um, but uh, we, we were away. You know, it's our custom, even if we're away, that that we want to be worshiping God on His special day. So um, we looked around, and actually we've been driving by this church for some time on a rather huge campus and uh, looked, you know, alive and so on, Presbyterian Church, and we said, let's do that. So we went to the middle service. They have three services like we do, but all of theirs are on Sunday. So we went to the 945 service and drove in and could not find a place to park. It was just jammed. I had to kind of park on the grass and so on. And we went in, and uh, yeah, there were you know, a ton of people there, and there was this choir that was like massive, massive choir. It was a fairly traditional service. The music was great. Uh, the choir was awesome. Preaching was good, biblical, relevant, and so on. And uh, yeah, we were, we were kind of oppressed, um, but there was something kind of was going on within us as we were there that we kind of... Um, wondered if something was sort of missing. Now, now, when we looked around at the congregation, as you are on the screen there, we did say that we were missing a little diversity. I mean, we're in an area that's, you know, has a variety of uh, cultures and races, and this was white, 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 white. So we knew that something was missing, but um, that was missing, but there was something else. It was something else that just was missing in this, what we experienced here. And uh, the answer to our question about what was missing and is missing in many alive and successful churches is what Paul, excuse me, John, uh, in his revelation that he received from Jesus, uh, addresses in the letter that Jesus gave him for the church in Sardis. Now, this is part of a series that we've been doing called What Jesus Thinks of the Church, and it comes from those first few chapters um, of the book of Revelation after this amazing experience of Jesus being revealing himself to John, then Jesus immediately says, I've got some messages for the seven churches in this particular area, which really represent the church in its diversity throughout all uh, regions and all parts of history. So this is something uh, that is addressed to us uh, here today. So after describing his astonishing vision of Jesus, who has eyes of blazing fire, uh, John receives seven specific addresses to each church in which Jesus describes what he thinks of that church and what that church can do to improve his impression of it. So thus far, it's as if Jesus and John are traveling on a little uh, tour here through this part of Asia Minor, which is in current uh, modern-day Turkey. Jesus addressed the loveless church at number one on the screen there in Ephesus, encouraging them to step it up in their love for him and for others. He's spoken to the suffering church in Smyrna. He comforts them and encourages them. He's challenged the compromising church in Pergamos, urging them to renounce the false teaching that they somehow have said, this is good and we'll take that too. And he's confronted the unfaithful church in Thyatira, urging them to turn from their immoral practices. Now in the process, Jesus has revealed himself 
to them and to us who read it. He's shown himself to be the God who is always with his people. He's the eternal hope we need in trouble. He's the truth that we have to receive with nothing else added. And the one who will directly oppose us in any rebellion that we may have. Now, this Jesus, through John, is going to consider the church in Sardis. Now, Sardis is a city that was at one time in the mid-first millennia B.C. extraordinarily wealthy. In fact, at the height of their power, they had a king whose name was Croesus. And some of us here are old enough to remember people talked about somebody being rich as Croesus. Well, it was that guy. And it was that kingdom called Lydia that had this uh, capital city called Sardis. And that was its greatest period. But by the time of the New Testament, this Sardis thing had just gone down. And it had kind of become sort of nothing much uh, really. And yet, this was a city that still thought of itself as great. And particularly when it compared itself to its rival city, number two on the screen there, Smyrna. They were kind of like, I guess, the New York and Boston, you know, had this rivalry with each other. And so Sardis was saying, we are Sardis the Great. And yet all of Rome, all of the Roman Empire knew that this was really nothing. Sardis was just a small town, a dying place at that. Now this tendency of cities and states and nations to self-promote, especially when they are sort of going out, is a familiar life cycle in the human condition. Now, for those of you listening on the podcast, I'm going to draw a parabola starting down here in the lower left where cities and nations kind of come together in the first place, either by design or by war or by some other means. They come together and they sort of consolidate themselves around a series of ideas and principles sometimes imposed from on high by a dictator leader, but they gather around these principles and things that they believe in And then they begin to develop some goals of what they're going to do with the territory they have and the people that have come together around them. And then they develop certain kinds of structures that are going to put those things into place. And then they kind of begin to hum and they begin to develop a life over the years. And they reach this kind of peak at the top where everything's really kind of humming and moving along. But it's an amazing deal that as soon as cities and states and nations get to that place, because everything has a life cycle, a birth and eventually the death. There's nothing eternal save for God. As Soon as they get to the peak, they begin to decay. And what begins to happen is instead of keeping their vision, they sort of develop a kind of a picture of nostalgia of the way things used to be. Instead of being committed to common principles and values, they begin to question them and push back at them. And instead of having unity around particular ideals and ways of life, polarization begins to set in. That's a common thing that just happens with everything that you see in history. But it's especially at this point, as things are beginning to go downhill, so to speak, that a a, a curious thing begins to happen. These cities, these nation states, they begin to promote themselves. They begin to kind of push back at the arc of history. They start trying to go this way by beginning to say, well, we're really great. In fact, we're really up here. We're still humming along here. We are... In this case, Sardis the Great. They promote themselves, and they go against the basic kind of way that life operates. Now, does that sound at all current to you? A nation that is in some decline, that's seeking to promote itself as being kind of the top of the heap. 
That's sort of a familiar thing. It sounds contemporary, but it's the oldest playbook in the human condition. Now, during the last presidential election, both parties, both parties, promoted a vision of America and its greatness. One party wanted to bring us back to the 1980s, a vision of greatness. The other party wanted to bring us back to the 1990s. And the reality is, you can't go back. We're in 2017. It's a whole nother world. You can't turn back the clock. A vision of America that was at the past, but which really doesn't exist anymore. Now this attempt to roll back the clock by advertising and persuasion, both in the case of Sardis and in the case of current day America, it doesn't work, at least in open societies. Now dictators can temporarily force this promotion, sort of like North Korea. We are awesome, we are North Korea. Their people are starving, but we are awesome, we are North Korea, and it's imposed by the little guy. You basically better go along or you're in deep trouble. But even dictatorships will eventually lose out. The only way that cities and states and nations can actually revitalize themselves is not by promoting a vision of what was, but it has to do with a national turning back towards the visions and the values and the, the things that brought them together in the first place. In some cases, having to repent of the things that brought that nation back into existence. The kind of rampant kind of land grabbing that some nations have done. The rampant kind of violence that started out. It's a reconsideration of this on a national scale. And it's a very, very rare thing. And it's a very hard thing to do. Re-examining the dreams and the beliefs and the goals that were present at the beginning of the founding of the nation or of the city. And then developing new structures and new goals to match the stuff that has been observed in the new period. Now, as I think of recent history, two nations come to mind who have done this work. They're both in Africa. One is South Africa, the other is Rwanda. South Africa was, in generations ago, being torn apart by apartheid, and and those of us who watched at that time said, this is gonna end in a horrible bloodbath. But there were some leaders, and some people, and a whole nation began to kind of re-examine their foundation, to begin to repent, to seek reconciliation and truth, and to begin to work together to reconstruct a just and, and sane society. And South Africa is relatively healthy today. They still have a lot of work to do. The other nation is Rwanda, a nation who torn aside by genocide of an unprecedented count. And that should have just continued and continued and continued. And it is in some places. But as a whole, this nation began to reconsider its values and to look at itself again. And Rwanda is becoming the jewel of Africa in these days. And behind such things as reflection and repentance and reconciliation, of course, is God. God. And these are nations that did turn to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness, his guidance, his wisdom, his power, so that there might be a new day for them. That's the hard work. But that doesn't often happen. Because churches that exist in cities and states and nations that come out of the cultures that they're operating in, including the self-promoting kind of culture that many nations and cities are into, those churches tend to reflect those values. 
Such was the case with the church in Sardis. Sardis was what I'm calling the self-promoting church because it existed in the self-promoting town of Sardis. And so the Lord Jesus, through John, addresses them. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. In, in the Pew edition, it's on page 868. I'll read the first three verses. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now, it's interesting. Jesus addresses this, and in each case of these letters, to the angel of the church in this place. We wonder what that means. Does it mean as if there's a guardian angel for each church? Maybe, and yet in this case, why would you write a letter? Why would Jesus write a letter to an angel? Angels automatically know what the master is up to. No, I think he's writing it to what the word literally means, the messengers, the messengers of that particular church, which would be the bishops, the pastors, the elders, and so on, in Sardis and the six other churches. And so I just want to say that I am so pleased to be part of a church that has messengers, angel messengers of God who stand here week after week and bring us the word that we need to hear from God and that they got their ears out for him. They're listening to God as he speaks a message uh, to and through the church. Now Jesus identifies himself here. He says, these are the words of him, meaning Jesus, who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And we've already seen that that seven spirits, seven stars, that means the church. And it's really important to note that it is Jesus who holds that together. Jesus holds this church together and the church of his around the world. It's not the pastors, it's not the elders, it's not the bishop who hold the church, it's Jesus. He's the one who can hold his church together. And so he begins to declare what he thinks of it because he's the one that holds it. He says, I know your deeds. He's focusing on what they're doing. Now it's interesting, we know and we've heard already mentioned several times this morning that we are saved not by our deeds. We're saved by grace of God represented in Jesus dying on the cross to forgive us our sins. And that's activated through faith as we receive what God has given to us. That is what justifies us before God. But God still is judging our deeds, yours and mine. He's looking at us. He knows everything we do, everything we think of, everything we say. And he judges it. And he's holding that up. And there will be a day of judgment. Now again, for those who have received the grace of God, in spite of the judgment that will come against all that stuff against us, as we've heard, there is nothing that is going to separate us from the love of God and from the welcome home of our Heavenly Father. But yet in the meantime, God judges our deeds. Because faith without works is what? dead and that was happening here he says I know your deeds and then down in verse 2 he says I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God now maybe there was a time in this church when folks did deeds that God asked them to do without question they would give anything for him they were just so delighted 
to be loved by God through Jesus Christ, that they would say, yes, you want us to do that? We'll do it. But somehow there was an unfinished quality now to their life. It's as if it just wasn't so important. This church was not totally dedicated to the work of God and to the matchless name of Jesus and to pursuing his will completely. Their dedication was incomplete because now, at this stage in their life, and their life in their city, their dedication had been replaced by another focus and another deeds. Like their city, they became the self-promoting. A self-promoting church focused more on their own name, their own greatness, rather than the name and the greatness of Jesus. Look back at verse one. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, the word used there for reputation is actually the word name. You have a name of being alive. You are the name it alive church. They were making a name for themselves. We're the alive church of Sardis. Aren't we awesome? Maybe they had amazing worship services like we've had here. Wow, life of Jesus is with us. Isn't that awesome? We are awesome too. They have become the self-promoting church rather than the Jesus-promoting church. Their name, their reputation became more important than his. Now again, this self-promotion tendency in the church and the people of God and in individuals is an age-old practice. We first see it in the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. It describes the people that came together. They were united in place and purpose. Nothing wrong with that. They said to each other in Genesis 11, come, let's bake, make bricks and bake them thoroughly and build ourselves a city. Now, God had no problem with that. Some people think, yeah, cities are the bad thing. They never should have done that. No, 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 cities are an invention of God. In fact, we are going to end up in the city of God, and it'll be awesome, more awesome than the Emerald City and the Wizard of Oz. It's going to be amazing, but it'll have beautiful things and culture and people coming together and people released from the bondage and the competition and the, and the, and the kind of violence that oppresses us in city and town. It'll be amazing. No, it wasn't that that God eventually got opposed to. They said this, let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves or otherwise we'll be scattered. You see, in their fear of being kind of pushed out, they chose a tactic that God will always oppose, and that's self-promotion. He opposes it in individuals who claim his name. He opposes it in any church that claims his name. And so in this case of Babel, God confused them. That's where we get the word Babel. They just were speaking Babel to each other and they were scattered as they feared. Why? Because God's name alone is worthy of being promoted. And God knows that if people will promote his name first in the way they live, they will be truly united and truly safe, named by him. And we see this in the letter reflected to the church in Sardis. If the name of the church is being promoted as it was in Sardis, which promotes itself with this name of being alive, Jesus will oppose such a church as he does in his letter to them. Whereas they thought they were alive, you have a name of being alive. In fact, he says, you are dead, or at least you're about to die. 
Whereas they thought their deeds were good, he says they're unfinished in the sight of his God. And then he says this to them in verse 3. He says, in verse 2, he says if, uh, in, in verse 3, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now again, when we hear the words coming like a thief, we think of Jesus' second coming, the end of history. That isn't what he was speaking about here. He was speaking about coming as a thief, in other words, at an unexpected time, and taking the lampstand away from them, taking their life away from them as a church. In both in his letter to the compromising church of Pergamos and the loveless church of Ephesus, Jesus says, I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth and I will remove the lampstand because I want to have a people who represent me well. I do not want a false representation. That's what is going to happen to any church that promotes its own name rather than the name of God. It will be opposed by him. Though they saw themselves, you see, as being at the peak of their life, Jesus was saying that they were, in fact, about to die. Now, that's, you see, what Hallie and I were experiencing in that church in Pennsylvania. We kind of said, we heard more about the name of that church than we did about the name of Jesus. And that was true in their announcements. That was true in their website. That was true, if you will, in the preaching. It just... It just seemed to be all about the church and less about him. Now, I know there are dedicated people there. I'm sure the pastor is a godly man, but there's something going on here. And they're in a denomination that is in decline. And so is there that temptation that they've succumbed to to promote themselves? And is God, even in their aliveness and their fullness, going to come against them? There is a warning here for churches like ours that are successful and are doing well that it's very easy to begin to promote yourself rather than Jesus. That's what we experience. Because churches also have this kind of a life cycle. They start with a vision of God bringing a bunch of people together around certain values and certain ways that they see God working. And he gives them goals and things that he wishes to have them accomplish. And they develop certain structures and plans. And they begin to move along until at some point they're really humming and things are already going on and people are getting saved and lives are getting transformed and communities are getting helped. But it's just kind of a principle that, again, nothing lasts forever. And as they begin to go down this kind of side here, nostalgia begins to replace vision and questioning begins to come on the core values and polarization begins to develop. And at the same time, that's when the church begins to begin to promote itself. Oh, yeah, we're a great church. We're an awesome church. We're doing amazing things for God and so on and so on. If you visit those churches' websites, if you go to their Facebook pages, that's what you see. You see a lot about the church, but you don't see much about Jesus. It's just a subtle kind of thing. And this is the kind of thing that God is speaking of in his letter to the church in Sardis. You can tell. Some churches even think if they change their name, that will bring them in, and so on. It's just this funky little thing that happens because we're part of cultures that operate in a particular way. So the key question for any church is this. Whose name is being promoted? As you check out a church, that's what you want to know. Whose name is being promoted? Who's at the top of the letterhead? Who's first and foremost in that particular place? 
That's the question. If it's the name of the church, not going to go well because God will oppose it. Now, you know, we tend to think, well, that's the enemy coming against the church. Maybe, but maybe it's because God has said to the enemy, okay, I'm going to give you permission. Go after those people until perhaps they might wake up and have a change of mind. But if the church is promoting the name of the Lord, he will make all things well, as he did for those in the Sardis church who revered his name, who hadn't soiled their clothes by engaging in this self-promotion. Let's look now now at verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, you have a few people in Sardis who haven't soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and before his angels. Now, in that particular phrase, those particular verses are amazing promises that we hear in the journey can claim for ourselves so long as we refuse to promote ourselves, promoting only the Lord. You see, the church whose people promotes the name of the Lord will find that Jesus is walking by their side. He will clothe its people with a holiness which is not their own that will be evident to everybody around them. They will become the people that they always wanted to be like. Jesus will keep the names of those people in his mind and in his heart and on his lips and he will acknowledge those names and that person to the Father. That person will really begin to live who's part of that kind of a fellowship. It'll be like we heard of the testimony, I've got my joy back, I've got my life back. That's what happens to people who promote the name, the matchless name of Jesus. And when those people stand before God at the last judgment, they will be hearing their names mentioned by Jesus and the doors to eternity will open before them. Yes, God has every deed recorded of our life, but we will stand before him because of one name only, not ours, but the matchless name of Jesus, which literally means God saves. And that's what will happen for every individual in this room. Jesus will stick by you. He will clothe you with his righteousness and he will promote you before the heavenly Father if you will promote him. It's an awesome thing. All this because of Jesus and through your having lived in and by his name. Now, we pray in the name of Jesus. Some of us use the name of Jesus in some probably not such great ways, but the name of Jesus is an amazing name. Take a look at the name of Jesus and all the other names of his that he carries. This name of Jesus means that he's the righteous servant. He's the man of sorrows who understands our sorrows. He is God of the whole earth. He is the seed of David. He is the Lord and King over all of the earth. He's the friend of sinners like you and me. He's the carpenter's son who understands what it's like to work. He's the bright morning star. He's the commander of everything. He's the brightness of the father of glory. He is the mighty one of Jacob, the root of David. He is the savior. He's the living bread. He's the unspeakable gift. He's the word of life. He's God manifest in the flesh, the Lord Almighty. He is the man, Christ Jesus. There is no other name, friends. No other name by which we must be saved. We cannot do anything but revere the name of Jesus if we understand what he truly is. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Keep that name of Jesus. 
First and foremost, revere the name of Jesus. You know, in my tradition, I'm an Anglican. And, and, and some of us, when we gather and worship, every time we hear the name of Jesus, we do a little funky thing. We bow our head. And when I saw people first do that, I thought, oh, jeepers, creepers. You know, it's just uh, a little religious stuff. But you know, the more I think about it, the more I think when I say the name of Jesus, I just want to give a little, a little bow. Because in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we need to keep that. Keep that first and foremost in your life. In the life of this church. Call us to account. Call one another to account for holding the matchless name of Jesus. And if we have fallen short, if that hasn't been our custom, then as the letter says, we need to wake up and strengthen what remains to recapture this sense of the matchless name of Jesus. And that will involve several things. It'll involve reflection on who we are. Who are we? A bunch of people who just come together to worship? No, we are a people who have been named by God, sons and daughters of the Father, through what name? Jesus. And we need to repent if Jesus is not what he says he is for us. We need to say, okay, sorry, I've kind of put you over here in the little religion box. Men are particularly good about this. We have little boxes for everything, you know. We got our worship box and our work box, and then we have our nothing box where we don't do anything. But in any event, Jesus is in all of those boxes. There's no boxes with Jesus. He is everything. We need to repent if he's not that way. And then we need to be reconciled to him. If we've offended him, if we've grieved him, if we've pushed him out, we need to be reconciled, and we need to be reconciled with others. Because we need to, as we heard Kelly say, love God and love neighbor. Those two will go together. And then we need to reform our lives around him in whatever way he shows us. We do that as individuals, and we do that as a church. Jesus said to us, wake up, strengthen what remains. Now, the great news is that none of us here is ever lost. Jesus is always coming to us. Judging us, yes, but encouraging us and saying, come, come back. I'm ready to welcome you like the prodigal father was ready to welcome both the son who had screwed up in one way by going away and by the, younger, the older son who screwed up by his bitterness and self-righteousness. He was ready to welcome them. Wake up, wake up to the reality. It's really hard work to do this kind of stuff, to kind of move across here back to the beginning of your life with God. Now, in our midst, we have some people who have done that hard work. For among us this morning are the former members of the Belmont Baptist Church, previously called the Swedish Baptist Church, and then it was called the Crossroads Church. They know about this kind of hard work. They and those before them had developed a great life here in this place. Even when I grew up in Worcester years ago on the west side, I was not a believer, but I knew about this church. I knew that it was one of those Jesus churches. And I wasn't into being in a Jesus church, but I knew that that place was here and they were doing good work for Jesus and they were doing stuff for other people. Well, then stuff started to happen and they began to decline. And there were some in their midst who did this kind of work of self-promotion even adopting a new church name along the way, but it didn't work. And so there are among us people who had another plan, another way of working. They did this hard work of 
listening to the Lord, and they heard his call. They woke up together. They reflected long and hard on who and whose they were. The people of Jesus in this city, along with many other people of Jesus who are here, they reconciled themselves to each other, and then they had a beautiful change of heart and mind that is just absolutely astounding. I can't get over it. They made the very costly decision to reform their life around Jesus as he was present in another church. And it happened to be Jesus present in the Journey Church. And you know what they did? They gave the Journey Church their building, this whole thing. They gave all of their assets. They gave their name away. They were no longer going to be Belmont or Crossroads. They were just saying, we want to be with your name under the matchless name of Jesus. And most importantly, they gave the best gifts they could give. They gave us themselves and their wisdom and the years that they've known what it's like to try to be church, which is not an easy task. But they did it because they were responding to a call of Jesus whose name is above every other name. And so they're here among us and we are the blessed people because they're here and, and this ministry is thriving once again because of their decision, all because of God and their decision to respond to him. So if they're members of the former Belmont Baptist Church or Crossroad Church here, would you please stand? We want to acknowledge you. We want to acknowledge you. We want to say thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for making this costly decision. Thank you for lifting up the name of Jesus for us. Thank you that we can do that together, and I pray that that will always be the case, that you and we together as Journey Church will make that not the name that is to be remembered, but the name of Jesus, no matter what the cost. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for what you have done, for your matchless name that describes all of the gifts of heaven on earth that is given to us, the gift of forgiveness and reconciliation, being able to repent and be received, the gift of being able to become a new person and a new people. Thank you, Lord, for this. I pray that we would never, ever be self-promoting either a people or an individual or a church, but we would promote your matchless name forever and ever and ever. Amen.